to give you a little bit of background, um, I basically am from JNU and while being a student at JNU, I went to field work um, with student union members uh, to various parts of India where there was mining and displacement, etc. And I encountered uh, small farmers and I, it felt like um, our politics did not talk enough about it. So that's where my interest comes from. And so a large part of my work concentrates on um, rural proprietary classes, but I do try to weave it in with um, the Indian state and the nature of Indian state. Um, and you will see in a while that the, some of the texts, some of the works that I look at were works in 1980 which have tried to understand and characterize the political economy of India. And I go back and look at those texts and I try to understand if they are still relevant in the current India or have things changed significantly in the liberalization, privatization era and if changes have happened, uh, what are those changes? So the level of analysis is, um, well, I look at the current agrarian policy and the agrarian crisis. Um, I see more familiar faces, which is so good. Uh, <laughs> so um, I look at the agrarian policy and the agrarian crisis. For those of you who don't already know, India has been experiencing a kind of agrarian crisis uh, from the 1990s. Uh, once India goes into the liberalization phase right after that, in 1997 onwards, India starts experiencing farmers' resides. Um, and there are scholars on the left who have characterized it as an agrarian crisis, which goes to show that um, the sector, as in the all rural classes, are losing out in the liberalization era of India. And that's something that I question through the fieldwork that I do. I also examine the uh, specifics of the class-state relations, as I just said, and I, def I, I go on to challenge that perhaps uh, even if it's in the globalization era, it's important to understand what's happening in particular countries and how the state-class relation unfolds. Um, there are people who argued, like MacMichael, that um, in the globalization era, there is a, there's a kind of uniformity which unfolds across countries. And all countries are going through a similar experience, but I would argue that per perhaps that's a too simplistic way of looking at um, how deep the class-state relations are, and I use the case of India to challenge that kind of a literature um, that has been prevalent. And the works, the, the scholarly works that I develop on are works from Nicole Polanza, Bob Jessam, Mushtaq Khan, Pranabardhan, Ashok Mitra, and Atul Kohli. Um, Atul Kohli really is the work that I base my, the form of my book on, because Kohli's 1987 book is a three-state analysis through which he goes on to talk about the state-society relations. Um, and I basically uh, adopt that format of research, and my research is also in three states in India, uh, comparing them and contrasting them to understand the nature of class-state relations. Uh, the other works, however, are more to do with the theoretical foundings uh, that I question, that I revisit, that I build on. Uh, to make sense of what I encounter in the fieldwork. So there are two levels of work. One is the fieldwork and the other is talking to uh, the existing scholarship on the, India, uh, on the state class relation and where I can situate it. Um, I mean, this is a lame slide, I guess. But in 1991, India <laughs> enters the globalization era and there are all these new policies which are going to be introduced. 
um, a particular moment in the uh, post-liberalization India that of, is of particular interest to me is the year 2004. Uh, 2004 is the year when uh, the National Democratic Alliance, which is under the BJP, uh, the Bharatiya Janata Party, which is right now the ruling party, and just won elections in uh, Tripura. Uh, so that party faces uh, a defeat, and uh, UPA, the United Progressive Alliance, comes to power. So I take 2004 as a very important year because for me, there, there were scholars who write, start writing how uh, perhaps the India shining campaign that NDA floats during the 2004 election was not well received by the rural voters. And mind you, when you say rural voters, they are still um, arguably between 58 to 60% of India's population. So um, the rural voters were not happy with that kind of uh, campaign and the kind of policy position that the NDA had taken and the UPA comes to power. So I take that as a very important moment and go back to the states as in India is a federal country. So the states where uh, the BJP is in power, um, I go back to those states to see, do they do something to address the rural voters? Do they do something with the agrarian policies to bring back the confidence of the rural voters, because you cannot be a robust national party if you have about 58% of the country not with you. So that's why 2004 and policies after 2000 uh, is a very important question for me that I pursue. Um, and if you look at BJP, particularly in the states that I uh, look at, both Gujarat and Chhattisgarh are two states where BJP has been increasingly seen as a farmer-friendly party. So what is farmer friendly? Who are these farmers that they are friendly with? Um, is it the entire rural vote bank? Those are the kind of questions that I had in my head when I go to these um, states. So India has a federal structure. All of those are again lame. Right at the end, my work spreads across four, three states. But a large part of this talk is about Chhattisgarh, which is the least known among the states because it's a new state. It is carved out of Madhya Pradesh in the year 2000. So it's a very new state. And it, in comparison to Chhattisgarh, so I would, in comparison to Chhattisgarh, I would also give you some details about Gujarat to make sense of what's the commonality and what's the contrast between the two. Um, and the reason I did that is because along with the agrarian question, I was also very interested in the question of political settlement, an idea that I take from uh, Professor Mushtaq Khan. Um, so political settlement is basically a way of looking at state-class relation without talking about class. So it talks about who are the elites who are close to the state and how is it maintaining a stable form of government in a way that the elites are not unhappy with it and they do not want to change the regime. So I basically take an understanding like that and I try to marry it with the Polonza kind of class-state relations. Um, so these are the three states that I go on to look at, um, Gujarat, Karnataka, and Chhattisgarh. We would hardly talk about Karnataka if you have questions, we can of course answer them. And um, my fieldwork is in 2011-12, but a lot of the literature, a lot of the things that I deeply look into is after 2000. Um, this is just a picture that um, it's in a very interior village in uh, Jagdalpur, which is the Maoist area 
uh, affected by the extremist left movement in South Chhattisgarh. And this is just a village there uh, with a house which has a BJP stamp right on it. You don't have any tribal paintings or anything. They've been replaced by uh, the big political party making a claim on a tribal house. And I think it's very symbolic because uh, as I take you through the anecdotal uh, instances that I collect, you will see that BJP doesn't really love the tribals, but they have a political position um, and have used very systematic ways of including the tribals within the fold of the party, despite not liking them. So, you know, that contradiction is something that we will talk about as we move forward. Before we talk about this agrarian policy, so agrarian policy, as I told you, that after the liberalization, um, it, it starts off slightly slowly. So by 95, 96, you really have um, agrarian reforms coming in in India. Um, and by 97, you have huge amount of farmers' suicide being registered. There is a withdrawal of the state from formal credit, from fertilizers, from irrigation, public irrigation really gets a hit. So agriculture sector seems to feel like it needs to stand on its own now, and the state is not going to support very much as per the prescriptions coming from the austerity measures of globalization. Um, but when you look at the same policies of the same states after 2000 and gradually closer to 2004, 2006, you will see that the language of this agrarian policy goes through a significant change. They no longer talk about complete withdrawal. They talk about how they need to focus on specific things to make agriculture a viable sector. So, um, and I, I argue that when you talk about, I and mean, when you look at details of these agrarian policies, you actually begin to see that there is um, a very strong class bias in the kind of policies that they are propagating. It is very much in favor of the rural proprietary classes and very much against those who are capital poor. So small farmers, cerulean farmers, and marginal farmers. In any state, they are about 80% of the farming community, between 80 to 85, depending on where you're looking. Um, and they are really not the clientele that this agrarian policy, which is coming after the 2000s, is focusing on. Uh, and through that, we will go back to the question of what is the political settlement. Um, a bit on Chhattisgarh, I mean, there was just someone who asked me, where is Chhattisgarh? Do we all know where it is? Almost? So it, it's right in the center of India, as we just saw, and it's tribally, it's dominated by tribal population. Um, and right from the beginning, from 2000 till now, the state has been under the control of BJP. So it has not had rule by any other political party in the last 18 years, since its inception. Um, and it has significant amount of majority-minority tension, very similar to Gujarat, which has also encountered the 2002 riots. And although it's, it's not in a violent situation, the tension between the majority and minority is something that Gujarat society just has learned to live with. So like, if you want to go, uh, want to have non-veg and you want to go to specific parts of Gujarat or Ahmedabad, people would tell me that why do you want to go to mini Pakistan? So, you know, it's just a part of the everyday talking about the Muslim part of the city as Pakistan. Um, uh, both Gujarat and Chhattisgarh are doing pretty badly in the Human Development Index, but this is about Chhattisgarh, which is the lowest on the HDI. Uh, however, it is uh, the rice bowl of India. I mean, in 2011, Chhattisgarh gets, is recognized by the union government as the highest producer of rice, but it is also marked as one of the most food insecure regions of the country. So what does this mean um, for the state and for its politics is something we will see. Um, the methodology is that I had a year-long field work and 150 long interviews, focus group, and pilot surveys. 
um, and visited all the three states, 24 districts in total. Methodology was interdisciplinary, uh, written in the style of thick description, uh, weaving quantitative and qualitative method. Now coming to the, the biggest part of my findings, um, and this is probably the most important thing that I want to say for the book, and I'm just laying it out here so that before everybody loses the steam, we have already seen the study. Um, so this is kind of what uh, Pranabhadhan writes in the 1980s, that India, uh, the state of India has three dominant proprietary classes. Uh, they are the rich farmer, the capitalist, and the professional class, and these three classes um, have three very distinct set of demands from the state. And that is what is kind of creating, uh, creating a lot of tension with the state in terms of what should be the policies that they propagate. Because if they choose to go for one of these classes, the other classes are not happy. So that remains, I mean, that is like one Bible that you read when you start reading political economy of India. Um, and I propose on the basis of my findings that perhaps there's a, there's a need to really look at these classes and try and understand who are the main players now in terms of the proprietary classes and are there, do we need to fine tune them further to understand who are the main players and uh, how are they gaining from the state. And for me, I think um, the first and the second remains, so rich farmer continues to be in the game and you also have the industrial capitalist who is very much in the game, but the third category has been replaced by the petty bourgeois. Um, and as we go through the fieldwork experience and the knowledge that we get from fieldwork, we will see who these people are. But petty bourgeoisie is an idea that I take from uh, Mushtaq Khan and Polenza. And Polenza talks about the petty bourgeois as the old and the new. So the old are those the petty bourgeois who are basically thriving and accumulating through the resources of the state. Whereas the new petty bourgeois are those who are thriving and accumulating through the resources of the market. So we are, I mean, I do encounter both of these on fieldwork, so I, so I bring back both these categories. Among the rich farmers, um, I felt a, a big need to understand this rich farmer in a more differentiated form. So there were people who were big farmers, but they were not into capitalist agriculture. So they would continue to grow uh, paddy, they would not, they would continue to use labor, they would not have mechanized methods, they wouldn't have machines, they were using bulls, uh, and when you, even under this kind of a farmer, even if they have a 20 acre or a 25 acre farm, you cannot categorize them as a capitalist farmer because that's not, it's not a profit making enterprise for them, they do have a big holding. Whereas you have these capitalist farmers for whom agriculture is really an enterprise like any other. And for them, uh, they invest in agriculture for the sake of making a profit out of it. And you encounter many more of them in Gujarat than you do in Chhattisgarh. But when you start looking at these uh, capitalist farmers, you also see that they are moving to a new set of crops in India. So if you look at the post-2000 story, like the Green Revolution, which happens in the 1960s and 70s, where you have uh, wheat, which gets a huge amount of bonus from the state, but you also have the whole wave of commercial farming coming in, cotton, oil seeds, etc., which gets introduced during the 70s and 80s, right now you would encounter a lot of people making a second wave of shift towards floriculture and horticulture. So what does that mean? Why are they interested in a different set of crops and also what that means for food, food security of the country because you cannot have flowers and survive. So for a population like India where you have to feed them, for uh, the big large farms moving towards uh, high, 
high-end or high-value crops would mean some serious things for our sustainability. Um, the third category gentlemen farmer for the lack of finding a better category I had put it in was they are people who are not from the farming background. So there are people like you and me, people who are in the bureaucracy, people who have uh, important political ties, people who are making money from elsewhere, and they see agriculture as a profitable business. So the reason they are coming in is they are coming in to own nurseries like um, if, if you go on the Noida Highway or the Bangalore Mysore Highway or the Surat Bombay Highway, you are going to encounter these new farms which are owned by people who are absolutely urban. Uh, and they are not farming, they are not there. They basically farm through managers and educated people, people who have biotech degrees and they are very different from our understanding of what a farmer is. Uh, but they are definitely contributing to the agrarian growth that these countries, uh, that these two states have had. And they also contribute to why the state is seen as a farmer-friendly state. Do we have any questions thus far? Um, so very briefly, um, these were the districts that I visited in Chhattisgarh. I, I don't know if they mean anything to you. But basically, this is Chhattisgarh, that's Orissa, the state to the right. Um, and if you look at Chhattisgarh, it has a peculiar character. So when you talk to those of you who know anything about Chhattisgarh, the northern and the southern districts are the districts which are much more tribally inhabited. So you have the tribal population living there. You also have much lower, uh, you have higher food insecurity and uh, the HDIs are much lower. And then you have the plains which are right at the center, which surrounds the Raipur, which is uh, the new capital of the state. Um, and it also has Bilaspur, which connects Bombay and Howrah, the two big cities of the country. The Bombay and Calcutta, the two big cities of the country. So Bilaspur and Raipur have been two very uh, key cities in the whole game of Chhattisgarh. Was that a question? Uh, question for the relatively fast, uh, one. Yes, please. They do not exist at that. So, uh, because the idea here is to understand who are close to the state and have an influence on the state, that's why look, we are looking at, um, we are not looking at small farmers. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, Chhattisgarh, uh, so the, the seven districts that I visit in Chhattisgarh, I base myself in Raipur and I start visiting around it. I start talking to people to understand where are these big farmers. Um, and capitalist farmers based, what are the kind of crops they, they work on. And I increasingly realize that if I can cover the central plains of Chhattisgarh, I should, it should be good enough to get a sense of what's going on in the state. Um, and as we move forward, we will also come back and talk about within Chhattisgarh, there are uh, divisions and uh, regional patterns that are emerging in terms of who is closer to Kolkata and who is closer to Bombay is determining what kind of farming is taking place and what kind of farming is not taking place. So it will also um, influence a lot of their decisions. In Gujarat, I basically followed, the red dotted line is called, uh, is basically what connects Bombay to, um, Bombay to Gujarat. So it's, it is literally like the arterial line, like the line which crosses Bilaspur and connects Kolkata and Bombay. This line connects most of the big cities of Gujarat. And I basically went around this line to understand what was the pattern of farming. And um, I went to pretty much all the districts that have been covered in this. So coming to the agrarian policies, the agrarian policy, if you look at um, any of the states, agrarian policy, 
Uh, Karnataka has policies in 2006 and 10. Uh, Chhattisgarh has a vision document which is in 2010, but they have these yearly annual policies which are coming out. Uh, and Gujarat also has small vision documents which come out, and this is collated from all of them. What are the main focus areas? So the first one is the input centricity model. The input centricity is that the only way that Indian agriculture can increase its productivity is by uh, changing the chemical inputs that they put in. So they have to buy high yielding seeds, they have to uh, bring in uh, better irrigation water, they need to get chemically processed pesticides. So as far as you can go from any kind of organic agriculture, that's the direction that the government is pushing agriculture in. Uh, it's of course associated with privatization of seeds, irrigation, fertilizer, to push for higher yield and hence production. However, it's a very lumpy technology. Uh, what does that mean? That if you're a small farmer and you actually take a loan for the seeds and you actually sow the seeds, but if you do not have the money to get the pump to do the irrigation accordingly, you are going to not get the yield. It's a lumpy technology because you have to have the seed, the pesticide, the fertilizer, and the water to be able to get the good yield. So you have to be able to make all the four investments, if not more, to be able to actually have a successful crop uh, from this kind of a uh, according to this new policy. You also have the second wave of commercial crops which we just touched upon. There's a huge focus on high value crops and if you look at data it shows that there is an increasing shift towards uh, capsicum, maize, potatoes. So there are acres and acres of land that you get in Chhattisgarh where Lays is contract farming. The Lays, the potato chips company, is a contract farming for getting um, the right quality of potato. Which means that people who used to grow rice uh, lentils, vegetables, millets in those areas now have to convert their land to grow potato to be as become contract farmers for these big corporates. So, uh, and the government is very welcoming towards these big corporates who are coming in with these uh, so-called high-value crops. And we similarly have maize and to, uh, to be uh, fed to animals for beef, beef production in the western countries. You have similar capsicum bell pepper, huge amount of land is being shifted in terms of what they are growing because we need high value crops and we need higher profits. So that people we are talking about the second green revolution. Gujarat, everybody now talks about how we need a second green revolution and the whole world is going to change with that. Uh, groundwater irrigation facilities and higher market access. Well, um, the government of India and the states used to have huge investments in public irrigation which means canal tanks, whichever could be accessed by everybody. But the new nature of irrigation policy is that the government now wants to subsidize um, sprinkler irrigation, drip irrigation, kind of things that you use for high value crops. So if you have a greenhouse and you need a very fancy sprinkler irrigation, the government is happy to give you 50% off, even 75% off in both Gujarat and in Chhattisgarh. But if you are someone who is depending on canal water for all these years, there are cases after cases where canal water is being diverted to industries. So if you are a farmer who cannot have your own private, you cannot put in the other 50% of the investment, then you cannot have that farm because the government is not keen to uh, proceed with public irrigation. So that kind of um, is making the distribution even more skewed because those who can make the capital investment are getting the support of the state, whereas those who are already weaker are being pushed out of accessing irrigation. Um, and there is a whole technology-driven agriculture about how we need to have more harvesting plants, how we need to have uh, more machines for harvesting, weeding, tractors, cleaning, everything has to be done with machines. 
And trust me, all these machines are for large-scale farms. You need to have a 20 to 25. And the larger it is, the more efficient it is. So they are really pushing for those kind of technology which are for the big farms and keeping no notice of what where the small farmers are going to go. Um, and this really brings me back to the question of who will then drive this growth? Okay, agriculture is important and the government is looking, the state is very keen to have a, uh, agricultural growth, but is, are they targeting a certain group of farmers or a class of farmers? And thankfully, the Hathisa government makes it very easy because in their policy document, they say that there's existing of big farmers constituting 30% of farmers who will be the drivers of growth. Clearly, the others can follow or may not follow, but that's not the important thing for them. So they are keen on agricultural production, on enhancing productivity, but they're focusing on 30% who are basically the big farmers and the middle farmers who are going to be the beneficiaries and the drivers. And the state is going to support them to be able to drive this growth. So there's a very give and take, close relationship emerging between the two. However, in this relationship, the state is more powerful than the farmers. In Chhattisgarh, um, anybody who reads about it, the industrial capitalist is the most dominant proprietary class. Uh, it's not the rich farmers, but the state has its own sensitivity and its own political reasons to keep the rural voters happy. So this is one way of doing it. In Gujarat, however, this was not as explicitly said. When I went to Gujarat and I met bureaucrats and interviewed them, they would always talk about the capable farmers. They wouldn't talk about big farmers, but whenever I would say that, you know, where would this irrigation money go? Uh, who are you thinking will own the greenhouses? Who is going to grow capsicum? They would always say the capable farmers will do it. And then I would say, is capable something that you can tell me more about? And then they would smile and tell me that, oh, madam, you're from jail. So you, what the question you're asking is not the question I want to answer. So well, that was a conversation good enough for me to understand what you were saying. Um, so there's this whole language that the bureaucracy has developed, capable farmers, progressive farmers, educated farmers, but they don't tell you that they belong to a particular class and that is already advantaged. Um, and they are going to now use the capitalist farming and going to make a further headway. Uh, what about the rest? Well, they have no vision about the rest. State engineer, the capitalist path that agriculture is supposed to take. And in that capitalist path that the agriculture is going to take, 70 to 75% of the farming community has very little to contribute. Was that a raise of hand? No, sorry. Okay, <laughs> it was stretching. Perfect. Um, and therefore, this is pretty much, uh, when I talk about this continuous agrarian policy, 1997 to 2004, I argue, is marked by the state withdrawing from the agrarian sector. But if you look carefully from 2004 to 2013, the state has partnered the private companies. They are offering subsidies, but now for private irrigation, for cheaper HIV, HIV crops, uh, seeds, they are saying that, okay, if you want pesticides, we're going to give it to you through the cooperatives. We are going to make education available to you if you want to do horticulture but no other crop. So the state has a very uh, directed and a very driven way of making agriculture of, of only one kind survive in these states. Um, and like we just mentioned, the small farmers are redundant in this picture of um, what agriculture should be like. So in Gujarat, again, the same bureaucrat, whenever I would ask him that, okay, if there are these capable farmers who are going to do the farming, what are the rest of them going to do? And he would be like, well, we are going to use them as laborers. And uh, if not, then they're going to do something else with their lives. We will stop the Rajasthani laborers from coming in so that the Gujarati laborers can work. 
So we had a, you know, they have this a whole other thing that they are going to do, but they are not going to do greenhouse, they are not going to do high yielding variety, they are not going to be the drivers of growth. And it was very interesting for me because it was a very clear vision of agrarian policy. All that while, all this while, I have thought that you know, agriculture is a sector that people don't think about. But it did not look like that at all when I spoke to the bureaucracies in uh, Chhattisgarh and uh, Gujarat. Um, Chhattisgarh also has encountered a high rise of farmers' suicides. The figures vary depending on who you ask, but about 9,000 farmers have died just in three years. Um, Gujarat does not have any figure, like for everything else, they don't have a figure. Um, demand for land is also something that's putting a lot of pressure on the small farmers. So this is a little different for the two cases. In Chhattisgarh, the demand of la uh, land is coming from mining and industrialization. There's a rapid amount of urbanization and industrialization happening in Chhattisgarh. So there is a demand of land from um, the capitalist side. And therefore, the, the expectation is that the land needs to free up. And how do you free up the land? You need to free up the land by making agriculture more and more unsustainable for the small holders in agriculture. So this demand of land, I think, is something very important because it, it brings um, not only the big capitalists back into the core of the story, but who are you going to buy this land from? For someone like a Vedanta or a Bosco who is going to come from London or Delhi to do put up an industrial plant in Chhattisgarh, they cannot buy the land from the farmer. So they have a whole land, a whole layer of petty bourgeoisie which is growing and thriving on land transactions. People who are basically buying the land from small and middle farmers and selling it to the big capitalists. So they are making a huge amount of money in transacting in land from one hand to the other. So they are also accumulating in the process. They are people who are fundamentally rural but have urban connections. They could be people who work in cities. They could be people who have a small little shop in a city. They could be someone who has children who study in the city. They have urban connections. But they also have a rural basis. And there were in multiple instances of people, both in Chhattisgarh and Gujarat, where there are people who are rooted in rural, um, uh, big or middle farmer backgrounds, who are transacting in land, accumulating through the process, and making this transfer of land from one class to the other possible. Even among rich farmers, there are farmers who would like to give up their land and just have a different life, so they would sell off their land. Or there are people who are politically very well connected, so they're using their connection to, again, make these land transactions possible from the village to the city. So if you, if you, if I, if you can remember that graph of the three main classes, the gap between the three classes seems to be reducing because land is one thing that all the main three propriety classes are seeking for three different reasons. Rich farmers, we would want to have larger farms so that they can use the mechanization that the government is offering. The petty bourgeoisie wants the land so that they can open nurseries for themselves or they can transact the land and make more money for themselves by selling it to the uh, industrial capitalists. And the industrial capitalist has a huge demand for land because India is going through a huge shift in terms of urbanization and industrialization. So therefore, the, a new demand emerges, a new uh, uh, item that brings the three propriety classes much closer than they were. Similarly, when we speak about this whole thing of privatization of agricultural products, the input centricity that I spoke about, in that as well, who are the people you want to sell these products to? You want to sell it to that 80% of the rural population. You want to sell the, the high yield seeds, the pesticide, the um, 
the irrigation pumps, the tractors, to all those people who are rural. But how do you sell it? The, the big Monsantos, Cargills, they are coming into the rural, rural areas and they are hiring the big people, the well-connected people, the big farmer and the dominant middle farmers, and they are being used to open those shops through which they are selling the products. So there's again emerging a successful petty bourgeoisie, which is connecting the interests of the industrialists and making sure that those products are sold in large numbers to the small farmers. So there's an extraction from the small farmers, which is going back and feeding the petty bourgeoisie and the industrialist. Um, unfortunately, the other big policy uh, that they keep talking about in Chhattisgarh is fan brings poverty. So like, we've to like I told you, the Chhattisgarh is a rice bowl of India, and in 2011, they get this price of being the largest rice-producing state of the country. But the government takes this position that paddy brings poverty. So they are encouraging people to get out of paddy production and start doing high-yielding crops, grow maize, grow potato, grow capsicum. The same thing by discouraging them from growing paddy. And this is a huge contributor to the food insecurity that Chhattisgarh is right now experiencing because they are fundamentally rice eaters and they're not as well connected to market. So they're not being able to procure the food um, and therefore the alternative model that they brought in is the PDS. Um, um, yeah, so those are some of the things that I wanted to say about how you are destroying the safety net and pushing them towards market forces. Um, now that we have spoken about some anecdotal evidence, I think it's, it's, it's important to revisit who is then a farmer. So the other thing that repeatedly came up in conversation with the bureaucracies and even with some scholars uh, is that they would talk about kisan, which means farmer in Hindi, as those who suffer due to increased wages of uh, farmers, just increased wages. So whenever I would talk to them and I would ask them that what is it, what is it that is ailing the Kisan, the bureaucrats would always tell me that what they are finding the hardest to do is to pay for wages. And who are the people who take these wages? They're exactly the small farmers who work as wage laborers because their land holding of one acre or two acre is not good enough to pay for all their things. So you see that within the bureaucracy and the, te and the technocrats, the increasing interest for whom they're making the agrarian policy are those Kisans who employ laborers on their land. So therefore, it is moving increasingly to the capitalist side of production, where only those who are capitalist farmers or big farmers who never cultivate on their own, who cultivate entirely with the help of others or with machines, are the people that they want to protect and uphold through the agrarian policies. And that was very interesting because um, the senior officer told me that the, the government is really worried about the, the Kisans. Like we are really worried about how do we take their agenda, how do we protect them, how do we make them survive in this race, but how do we do it? The answer was very simple. The answer is that we need to have quicker and faster mechanization. We need to subsidize tractors, we need to subsidize colors, we need to subsidize um, weeding machines, we need to, so everything that requires us to basically employ laborers in agriculture needs to be replaced by mechanization in a way that capitalist farmers can invest all that capital extra capital that they have towards mechanization and free themselves up from, farm, uh, from hiring uh, wage laborers. And that brings us to the question of how much are the wages that they are paying? So 
Does anyone know what is the wage like in rural India? Yeah, and it is affected because of the NIDG. So the big complaint is that because that government, the UPA, bought in the NREGA and since then these, uh, the wage laborers have been demanding more and more money and they can go to construction sites in the urban centers so they expect us to pay more money and we don't want to. And the solution is not anything else. The solution is that get rid of those laborers. Let them not have work in the agrarian sector and let's replace them by patronizing. Um, and it was a very interesting thing for me because all my life I thought Kisans are small farmers. Until I met these bureaucrats who told me that Kisans are those who hire laborers, so they are necessarily big farmers with all the other capabilities. So that kind of was a very important insight into how the state thinks about uh, the agrarian population. Um, this is something we've already gone over, but I'll just quickly. Um, just touch upon probably this point and that point. So in irrigation as well, it is adding a one more source of accumulation for the big farmers and the capitalist farmers. Because like I say, the state has retrieved from public irrigation. So there are less canals, less tanks, <coughs> less public uh, sources from through which you can irrigate. So the small farmers are become dependent on the big farmers of their villages from whom they rent in the pumps to irrigate their land. So, the privatization has unfolded in a way where A, they are getting the state support in the form of subsidy. Similarly, they are also renting out their pumps when the big farmers don't need it and the small farmers are paying an exorbitant amount of rent to use those pumps and protect their crops. And if they have already sown a high yielding variety of crop, then they have to get the water in because that's a lumpy technology. If you don't have the water, your crops are anyway going to die. So you don't have a choice to get out of that. So there is one more way, one more source of accumulation here that comes up for exactly the same class which is gaining from the state subsidies. So if you look at you know, the entire wave and interlocking that's going on in the agrarian sector, it is absolutely disheartening to see how marginalized uh, those who are on the labor side of the agrarian population are right now. In terms of diversification, Gujarat is of course ahead of Chhattisgarh. Diversification is basically, um, Yeah, uh, so diversification is basically, there are, there are a lot of big farmers in Chhattisgarh who are now a part of the state bureaucracy. The reason being that it's a new state and they have a huge amount of reservation for OVC population. And a lot of these OVCs were already big farmers. So they continue to own land, but they're not a part of the state bureaucracy. So they have uh, a hand in both sides. So they are part of the old petty bourgeoisie because they're part of the state now, but they are also big farmers because they own land. You also have farmers who have opened huge amount of trading shops, so they trade in seed, in machines, in fertilizers, in pesticides, and they are the people who are convincing the rest of the farmers to buy more products. So not only are they moving towards high yielding crops, they are also moving towards this whole becoming the trader come farmer. So they have a new petty bourgeois uh, character now that is there developing, which is a new petty bourgeois because they're using the opportunities that the market is bringing in to thrive and grow. Um, and then you of course have the RSS wing there, which is the BKS, the Bharatiya Kisan Sangh, which operates precisely in the plains of Chhattisgarh and the southern and the central districts of Gujarat, where you have these big and, big and capitalist farmers, and they re basically represent the political voice of the exactly the same class of farmers to the state. 
So, and the interesting thing was that when I did go to um, the tribal districts in Chhattisgarh or the Saurashtra part of, Ch of Gujarat, I would hardly encounter a BKS worker because they were not interested in giving voice to those who are not the mainstream or those the government was not already interested in. So the, the organized voice or the lobby that you see as farmer movement <coughs> or farmer lobby arising out of Chhattisgarh and Gujarat is also very, very dominated by a particular class of farmers. Uh, and while I was in Gujarat, actually, the BKs managed to get, make the government uh, take away a, lab, a ban. The ban was basically on um, using electricity for pumping in the northern districts because their water level has really gone down. But they really went on a protest and the government right before the elections declared that yes, you can go ahead and use groundwater. Even if that means there's no drinking water for that part of the districts, it is okay because the farmer lobby is so organized and the BK's chief comes from the northern districts of Sabarkatha, so they got what they wanted. So there is a farmer movement but which is very, very specifically regional. That's the Kisan um, Sangh office, the BK's office in um, Gujarat. You can see it has a huge chariot. It's a very Hindu looking. Um, you can't miss the fact that it's very Hindu. It's also very grand. Um, and when I went to uh, their office, all I spoke about and all they spoke about was cotton and high value crops and capsicum and horticulture. And nobody spoke about rice and billets. Nobody spoke about pulses and food insecurity. So clearly, the rupture within the farmer interest was very distinct. The, the, the language that the farmer movement is acquiring in this part of both of these states is extremely pro-capitalist uh, farming, big farmer interest, uh, mechanization, and privatization. They have benefited from it, and they would want it to go in that direction and no other direction. Uh, capitalist farmers are an ally of the state, but not on state patronage in Gujarat. So we saw in Chhattisgarh that the state is the more important in the political ally in the political settlement. The state decides, and the allies basically follow. But in the case of Gujarat, I would argue that the farmers are extremely important, but they are not thriving on state patronage. They have managed to build their own linkages with the market. They have diversified into agro-industry. Many of them are by themselves big traders into mercantile uh, capital. So in every sense of the world, every sense of the term, they are also independent entrepreneurs by themselves. So they need the state to support them, but they do not need the state to patronize them. So there are two very different relations between Chhattisgarh and Gujarat of state and the big farmer lobby. Um, I do think I'm running out of time, but um, so this woman is very interesting to me. She is okay. Um, um, so she is actually someone. She's not from my fieldwork directly, but she's someone who's in Chhattisgarh. Um, she is a Satnami, which comes from a lower caste group, and she loses her land to a set of Jat farmers who have come from Haryana to Chhattisgarh to start high value cropping. So you also see um, the green revolution states making an inroad into the non-green revolution states. Uh, they are bringing in their machines, they are bringing in their tractors, they are bringing in their technology and they have bought acres and acres of land where they are now growing high value crops. And this woman has lost her land to one of these Haryana farmers and she works precisely in that farm but now as a laborer. She lives in the shanties within that farm where she used to own but her husband was killed in the transfer of land, we don't know why or how, but looks like there were some violent altercations 
um, while the transfer of land was happening. And we have over 100 acres of land in just that one gated community that they now use for high value cropping. Um, and I actually went to these parts of the district too and went round many of these gated communities. You can see nothing. It's like, you know, Bangalore, Shahrukh Khan, where you can't see nothing but the wall. But um, the local people would tell you that yes, it has been a sudden change because five years ago, um, this was all farmed by the lower caste people here, the, the small farmers, and now it's a consolidated large farm owned by this family of few jat farmers who now own that and mechanized it. And it's an absolutely something we have never seen. Such kind of mechanization, such big tractors, such big headers is something that Chhattisgarh has never encountered because they are Punjabs and Haryana's technology. They are the other end of fine technology which is moving to central India uh, and using the opportunity. And very interestingly, in my latest fieldwork, I discovered that the same set of jar farmers also go to Gujarat as lenders of machines in season. So what they've done with their work in Chhattisgarh, they go to Gujarat, but then they don't do the work. They only earn rent by uh, lending out the machines to Gujaratis. So you can see that it is it is perhaps not, um, not, it is definitely not a distributed growth, but there are some people who have an advantage and it seems they are making more and more advantage in the process of how their agrarian path is unfolding. Um, so I would argue that you know, increasingly it felt like this whole agricultural vision was for the farmers and by the capitalist farmers. So um, in Gujarat, in Gujarat, I eventually started seeing consolidation of the big farms, um, indicating the beneficiaries from agricultural mechanization are the capitalist farmers and their given farmers. In a minute, we will look at one data table to see what that means. So when you think about shift to high value crops from floriculture to horticulture, I would just pause. And in Chhattisgarh, this is not something that the whole state is encountering. So coming back to the east and west of the central city of Chhattisgarh, Raipur, if you go to the eastern side of uh, Raipur, to those cities and those districts which are between, Chath uh, between Raipur and Kolkata, those places are staying much more with paddy cultivation. They are staying much more with pulses and wheat. They are staying with traditional cropping where the big farmers are transforming themselves into old petty bourgeois. They have jobs in cities. They are investing in shops. They are, they are sending their children to colleges, but they are not moving into high value crops. They don't have huge machines. Whereas the west of Raipur, which is closer to Mumbai and is connected to the Nagpur and Mumbai uh, cosmopolitan markets, you see a much larger drive of capitalist farming, mechanization, and shift to high value crops. This is not something that I, I can explain, but this is a pattern that unfolds just within the state. Uh, whereas in Gujarat, you see overall a drive towards capitalist farming where they are very, very connected with the market and they're very sure that they want to go on to use market forces to make this change. Um, and they want the state to assist them, not the state to dominate them. Um, and what that meant, I mean, uh, again, it was one of my those moments of reality when I looked at this data table, oh no, which I can't, you can't see in total, okay, you can see all the relevant states. So if you look at any other state's data table of how uh, land holding is moving over the years, any other state would tell you that the marginal and small holdings are growing the fastest. Because you have such a high pressure on land in agriculture that you have more and more people. Like if I, my father had two acres of land and there are four brothers, then we have 0.5 acres. So 0.5 acres each. 
and the next generation will have even smaller. So the number of people increases, and therefore the small and marginal holding, those numbers tend to increase, and you have less and less large and medium farms, because there is a huge pressure on land and agriculture. Gujarat is one state where you have the large farms going up by 23% in the period um, between 2005 and 2011. And it shows that perhaps there is a merit in what all that anecdotal evidence was showing, that capitalist farming and big farming has taken off in Gujarat in a way that it is extremely profitable as an enterprise. You have uh, the middle farms gradually moving towards large farms. And you have very marginal increase in the small and the marginal farms. And this is not the case in Chhattisgarh. This is not the case in Karnataka. Both those, the 20 to 23% increase is in those first two categories. And this is where you see the decrease. So this actually confirms that all the anecdotal evidence that Gujarat was throwing up, that the state is pushing for capitalist agriculture, and the market linkages are very well received, and agriculture will go in a direction where you're going to have mechanized capital-intensive agriculture at the cost of that 75 to 80% of farmers who cannot afford that uh, capital-intensive agriculture. So they are going to be left out of the bandwagon, and it's going to take off with the 20% right at the top. And this confirms that that trend is going to probably, has already unfolding and will only get worse. That's, of course, me in the field work to give a proof that I did go to field. After all, but this is just talks about one more form of diversification on the other side of the production system, where you have um, the same farming community also trading in food. And if you think about Chhattisgarh, there are large parts of Chhattisgarh which are not connected by railway lines. Even in Gujarat, the small farmers do not or cannot bear the uh, transportation cost to come to Ahmedabad or Rajkot to sell their products. So they always depend on small traders who are going to take their produce to the big cities. And even these traders are connected to the farming communities. They are people who come from either the middle farmers or are people who have connections to urban centers or are people who have jobs in urban centers or are politically relevant. Is some kind of a worker for BJP or Congress. So for they find it much easier to connect and dominate in the uh, so-called democratic producer committees. So this is one more format in which the big farmers are uh, capitalizing on opportunity. And that brings us back to the question of political settlement. So I mean, there is nothing to um, contest that the, uh, the capitalist or the industrial capitalists are dominating the political settlement in both these states. Uh, a little differently although, because in Gujarat you have the industrial capitalist who's moving more and more towards a kind of monopoly capitalism. Um, and Modi with his very organized bureaucracy has been able to uh, take that forward in a very, very systematic way. Uh, he has a very organized guiding bureaucracy which takes care of the concerns of the industrial capitalists and directing it towards monopoly capitalism. In the case of Chhattisgarh, it is not as well directed. However, in Chhattisgarh, we encounter something called personal fusion. So almost every minister, big minister that you encounter, he or himself has a mining firm or a stone quarry or a cement factory or a real estate property. So they are themselves people who are a part of the capitalist uh, class who are coming into politics and dominating the most important positions of the state. So, um, so, so yeah, while, while it is true that the industrial capital is dominating, they are not dominating exactly the same way. Um, in case of uh, Chhattisgarh, um, the community that I encountered again and again are called the Agarwals. They always say Agarwal Bhagwan hai, means they are the gods. 
So Agarwal are people who came, a particular community which comes from Rajasthan and they have been settling in Chhattisgarh for the last 60, 70 years and they now control every trade that you can think of. Uh, from a petrol pump to the silk trade, to the road making, to the um, factories, to the real estate, to, um, you know, they are just everywhere. And anything you want to get done, you have to go to them and they can get it done for you. So I interestingly was, during my field work, was 